Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. These days, it's become virtually impossible to get an attractive, conservative yield on commercial real estate. Cap rates have gone way down and prices have gone way up. There's one asset class, however, that's held up comparatively well. That's sale, leaseback, industrial properties in secondary or tertiary markets. Neil Walgren, CLO of Mag Capital, is acquiring eight to 10 properties a year with cap rates in the seven to eight range with long-term triple net leases. So today we have with us a gentleman I just met actually and spent some time with earlier this week discussing maybe a potential uh, investment opportunity in a very interesting asset class with a very interesting uh, business plan. He's also a guy that's a fellow Bay Area guy, which of course makes him near and dear to my heart. And so today we have with us Neil Walgren, who is the COO of MAG Capital Partners. Neil, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me, Roger. Yeah, I'm excited to talk and, and kind of get all the, the details of what you're doing and how you got to do what you're doing. Um, and uh, you're doing um, basically sale leasebacks with uh, in tenant, uh, with tenants, existing tenants, mostly industrial. But before that, you're living in San Francisco, North Beach, in my opinion, the coolest part of the city, maybe by far. So I'm jealous. And I, I know you've got the big 925 number. I think you said you're from San Ramon. Are you a native Californian? Are you a native Bay Area guy? I am. Yeah. So I grew up in, in San Ramon, out in the East Bay. Uh, for those of you not from the Bay Area, it's kind of suburbia, about an hour east of the city, uh, east of San Francisco there. But um, definitely call that home still, but spent about 15 years out of state, kind of traveling the world, living all over the U.S., uh, overseas, and spent four years in Tokyo and uh, lived lived in a, a lot of locales uh, while flying cargo for the Air Force and the Navy, uh, but eventually worked my way back. You know, when you say that San Ramon is kind of the suburbs, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it is the suburbs. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> it yeah. is about as, let me put it this way. It's right next to a town called Pleasanton. And, uh, you know, almost, it reminds me of that movie, I think it was Pleasantville, uh, you know, with that very picture perfect, uh, you know, suburban feel and manicured streets and it's kind of like that so not a lot of surprises but you know a pleasant place to grow up you know it, it, it's probably grown with new construction as you know there's been ebbs and flows with the economy over the years but uh, and they they just opened up a new mall out there over the last year that went my wife and i went out to check it out just because covid bored and and uh, we ate at uh, the slanted door there which i think has grown to be quite an overrated restaurant <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. The original spot in, in San Francisco was rated, I think, for one or two years to be the best restaurant in the city. And I've eaten there twice. You know, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's good, but certainly not, you know, number one king of the castle status by any means. When they first opened, it was on Valencia Street as the mission was becoming the mission. This was like late 90s, 98, 99, and 
it was a kind of thing where, you know, if a, literally like if Clinton came to town, he was the guy at present of time. If Mick Jagger was in town, um, yeah, whoever it was, I mean, that was like a spot they, they, they went to, and then they were on the waterfront, which they still are. And, uh, we did a company, uh, dinner there a couple summers ago. And, uh, I thought all the people from out of town we had, cause our corporate is in Oakland, were going to be so impressed. And it's just like, it just wasn't that good. And I, I kind of wrote it off cause I'd only had nothing but incredible meals there. And then my wife and I ate there at the place out in San Ramon about a, a month ago. And I flat out thought it sucked. So anyway, I mean, that, that's strong language, which I'm not above, <laughs> obviously, but it didn't suck. But, it, you know, compared to its, you know, its image, it, it was like, OK, I'm, I'm not going back. And you paid for the privilege. Anyway, you lived in Tokyo for four years. Um, I have heard that Tokyo is the most amazing place. And it's kind of like the first place I want to go once my younger son goes to college, which is a year from now. I, I mean, people like I've heard it described as like 10 times what Manhattan is. A really good friend of mine says Japan is like the crown jewel of the Orient where everybody, all, all Asians go to vacation. And that's Japan, not just Tokyo. Would you say that that was your experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, especially Tokyo, it has such an international crowd there. Uh, but I mean, I just, I loved it, loved it, loved it. I mean, you know, going downtown, really anytime you go, it's, it's just such an experience in that, you know, you will, you will encounter, especially as a Westerner, I mean, you will encounter easily a dozen just like visual experiential things that weren't even on your, you know, on your map of things that you knew even existed. And I mean, it was such a, a such a unique kind of insular society that, you know, kind of has just developed and stayed within its own bubble, really independent from most of what we see in the U.S. and Europe. I think that's what makes it so fascinating because it's really kept that uniqueness. I mean, even just to use an example, their their fashion. I mean, they have their own complete fashion world out there. Almost none of it comes to the West, um, but it's still hyper popular out there. And you just see these different looks and feels. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wild to just experience being out there. You, you have not changed my mind about wanting to go there. Wow. And so pretty interesting background. You have a lot of education, but it says you were you were Navy and then you were also Air Force. Explain to me all the progression of what you did. And, and then eventually, <laughs> eventually we'll get to the real estate stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, grew up in, in San Ramon. To be honest, you know, it was kind of safe, kind of boring. And I was, you know, 18 looking for you know, a little way to spice it up. So I decided to go to the Air Force Academy for my undergrad. And so that's out in Colorado. I uh, ended up, you know, placing and, and ranking well through that such that I, I got a, a flight school spot upon graduation. So you, you get a commission when you come out. So you're a second lieutenant, uh, you owe, you know, a couple of years, um, you owe about 10 years if you end up going the, the flying route, uh, which I decided to do. And then, uh, you know, a couple different locations for flight school, different, you know, you start on jets and then you do multi-engine trainers. And eventually my pathway took me to the C-130 Hercules. And that's the, a big four prop kind of a, you know, rough and tumble, they call it tactical airlift. So it can, you know, land and take off on you know, dirt runways or, you know, I've done crushed coral and South Pacific islands, uh, you know, airdrop people and equipment out the back. 
you know, you're coming in on night vision goggles in combat environments, uh, you know, tours to Iraq and Afghanistan. So really just a, a neat experience, both from a travel perspective, experience, you know, maturing, you know, and able to take really some pretty big leadership roles in that plane, you know, managing a full crew and an expensive piece of equipment at a very young age. Um, so I think that really accelerated me into, you know, I would say, you know, going from a, a child to a man, I guess, during that, that phase, if you will. You know, I, I've interviewed a handful of people. I've been doing this for a year and uh, other people that are military and, uh, you know, have pretty much said, you know, the particulars weren't necessarily the same, the details, but pretty much all said that, that they grew up in the military that turned them into a man. I mean, that that is just amazing. So did you say you did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah. In 2008, and 2010, respectively there. And, and was this, what, what were the nature of those tours? Uh, you know, flying airlift. So, I mean, we did everything from, you know, bringing in, uh, you know, special operations guys to, you know, full army battalions. Uh, you know, they would come in through Kuwait and we'd bring them into different bases in Iraq. And, you know, this is when, when a lot of the Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, stuff was going on, Fallujah, you know, Al-Assad, kind of these areas, uh, a lot of Baghdad and Balad, which were kind of big air bases there. You know, most, mostly troop and equipment moving out there. And then um, uh, two years later, when Afghanistan was really kind of hitting its peak, uh, I did about six months out there as well. And that was that was more interesting flying because there's crazy terrain. I mean, some of the, I mean, really mountains that rival the Himalayas. Uh, they have these, you know, mountain lakes. I mean, really, from my perspective, I think Afghanistan would be one of the most beautiful countries to visit if it weren't for the whole Taliban and war thing. But um, really fascinating flying out there. Well, I mean, the good news is the Taliban are coming back in a major league way. That's <laughs> it's it's one way to put it. <laughs> You're one of the few people that actually laugh at, at my jokes, and that, that makes me love you even more, even though we just <laughs> met. My wife... A doesn't understand my humor, and, and, and then and then and then B in the rare situations where she does, she actually then just doesn't think it's funny. Oh, that's funny. My real quick, uh, quick aside. My wife is German, and whenever she doesn't laugh at my jokes, I'm like, it's okay, honey. The Germans aren't known for being funny, so you probably just don't get it. <laughs> she doesn't appreciate. It. Well, I, you know, I hate to go so politically in, incorrect and inappropriate, but being <laughs> Jewish, I've never found the Germans particularly humorous. <laughs> <laughs> right? So we're in agreement there. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. I've heard that about Afghanistan, by the way. I've heard that it's, it's, it's just mind-blowingly beautiful. And you were there for six months. So, I, you know, pardon my obtuseness, but I, I get that you were transporting troops in, in the prior engagement, 08 to 10, and then you did that six months in Afghanistan. Did you ever do like the, you know, like, like the, you know, shoot them up stuff in basically combat from the air or, or was it more different, like logistic stuff? We were on the receiving end sometimes, but, um, you know, I, the C-130, the model that was on was, was strictly airlift. There's some, some variants like, uh, what's called the AC-130 has a whole ensemble of weaponry off one side that is, is used for, you know, close air support um, in an offensive fashion. Um, but what we did, you know, we had a, a lot of, you know, basically anti-missile equipment on our, our planes and, and some reinforcement from, uh, you know, armor-wise to protect you from small arms fire out there. So 
in general, you know, a fairly a fairly safe safe plane even in that environment just because it's built pretty rugged and you have a lot of redundancy with four engines. But um, but yeah, you know, we're coming in doing a lot of airdrop out the back, you know, equipment just because it's really hard to land uh, in most areas because it's so mountainous. So we would come in and airdrop supplies for operations going on on the ground. And, um, you know, some some pretty tactical, really involved type of missions, which, you know, it was pretty challenging, but uh, I don't want to say fun, but really, you know, rewarding at the time. It really sounds like an absolute, unbelievable, incredible experience, to tell you the truth. It, it makes for some good stories over a beer at the bar, right? So. Yeah. Well, 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 hopefully we can we can get to that. And so, yeah, a- amazing stuff. And so how did you ultimately, uh, you know, get into the real estate business? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I got out of the Air Force and was able to transition to the Navy. Um, flying the same plane, just in a, in a in the reserve, so kind of part time. And I was originally looking. Most of my colleagues were getting out of the out of the um, you know the military flying world into the commercial world, uh, flying for Delta, United, etc. And I know it just never really appealed to me. I mean, kind of had the you know kind of the allure of a glorified bus driver in a way, and uh, you know just minus all the excitement of you know what we were doing. And I ended up reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that was, you know, really a nice enlightenment. I just said, you know, like if I continue down this path, my my time, or excuse me, my income earning potential and my wealth earning potential is tied very directly with my hours away from home on the road. And I just don't know if that's, you know, what I want to do long term. So kind of went back to the drawing board and decided, all right, you know, I know I want to get out of aviation. So what do I want to do here? Uh, and I ended up jumping into a startup for a little while in Southern California, and that was that was a neat neat experience. I was working business development for a renewable energies company that converted uh, effectively waste wood and uh, you know both ligno and and hemicellulosic feedstocks, which in plain language is like you know forest residues, you know branches, woody type of materials, or uh, crop waste. You know all the plants and stems and all the things that aren't sold for food. And we had a technology where we could heat it under high pressure, you know, high heat, low oxygen, and a technology called pyrolysis, where we would crack open the cells and the plants, extract the vapors for uh, ultimately a refinery use to turn that into a part of a gasoline mixture. Uh, And then what was left over looked like kind of granulated charcoal. And I was on that side where we were working on agriculture customers and horticulturists and soil blenders to blend this really porous form of carbon to improve the the structure and and microporosity of different soil types to improve crop growth. I'm just waking up after that, Neil. (laughs) (laughs) Some people love talking about dirt. (laughs) Some people (laughs) just lights out, but it's, it's really 50, 50 in my, my experience here. (laughs) So, so we'll glaze over that chapter. (laughs) I'm just laughing at this point because you're laughing. Uh, But that is, it is funny. No, I, I like science to me. uh, I'm just like, I'm lost. I'm, I'm a moron. I can't, I'm just completely lost and, yeah, I'm like writing assiduous notes trying to follow you. But anyway, so so it, it, it probably didn't end up going incredibly well, but that's an assumption I'm making I probably shouldn't make because you moved on from it. It, it was the, the technology worked, the economics did not. So uh, ultimately, you know, as a startup, 
the company had raised a hundred million and ended up burning through all of it. Um, so ultimately, uh, the company was called Cool Planet, uh, but ended up folding. But uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see if that technology—it's called biochar—ever gets gets adopted full term. Um, but no, it was a it was a good catalytic kind of moment in my life to to move up to the Bay. This was about 2015 or so, and had a uh, had a family friend who was um, actually married to a guy who had started uh, a real estate company, and we always kind of knew he did some real estate stuff, and ended up connecting with him really at a at a, a grant his grandson's birthday party, and he was getting a little older, um, you know, really looking for someone to kind of uh, help him out with the operations piece. Uh, and really we, you know, basically timing aligned and interests aligned. And so I ended up joining him, uh, and his company's model was raising equity from investors, uh, and partnering with commercial real estate operators or sponsors. So he would have, you know, about a half dozen people that were specialists in whatever asset class or geography that they, you know, did business in. Uh, and then, Ultimately, these operators typically were growing at a rate that they couldn't supply the own, their own investor equity capital. So they would partner with the group that I was in. And ultimately, we would be the investment arm, raise the capital, do the investor communications, and ultimately manage that wing of the investment through its entire. Judging from your profiles, is Tom Wilson? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, I'm one of the uh, three or four people that listen to KDOW 1220 AM. Okay. So I, it, I've, <laughs> Power I've, invest out there. Yeah, I, I've heard him. Was that model that he got equity basically in exchange for bringing, a, you know, a certain amount of capital to the table? Yeah, there'd be, you know, typically a roughly even split, you know, on a, on a deal structure between, you know, the, the investment arm and then also the, the operator side. Got it. All right. And and then, so you did that for a few years. And I guess, why didn't you continue doing it, which isn't meant to be devil's advocate. I'm just, it's just curious, you know, what, what yeah, led, no. yeah. It, it was, there was a, you know, a really nice kind of learning curve early on where, you know, I was exposed really in a deep way with different sponsors, different sets of underwriting, the experience of raising money for different asset types. And what one of the groups that I raised money for um, really early on in, in their growth trajectory was was Mag Capital Partners. And we, we had partnered on two or three different deals in, in 2016. And I really, I, just the, a few things stood out for me with both the group and the model early on. And I just, I loved really the team uh, to begin with. You know, it's, it's founded by two guys, Dax and Andrew both similar in age to myself. We just got along really well on a personal level, on a philosophical level. And you know, when you, when you meet someone that you just connect with, it's just nice. You want to do more business with them. And that was really the case. And then from a, a deal perspective, you know, I really, I, I connected with this industrial model, the sale leaseback, the alignment of interest between seller who's becoming your tenant, uh, and really the triple net lease that is the anchor for these investments, being able to remove the vast majority of the operational risk that comes from those expenses and removing those from the landlord's responsibility and putting them on the tenant, that really connected with me. Because you, I just found from a, you know, from a sponsor level, you're able to really meet your investors' expectations to a much tighter level because you have eliminated most of the risk that 
causes deviation from that. And so, you know, between those two, you know, there was an opportunity to join that team full time, which I did. My, you know, part of my motivation, well, actually all of my motivation is to learn as much as I can. And I come out of the marketing business. So, you know, my real estate stuff is, I wouldn't even say it's middling. It's, you know, I, I don't know, you know, a 2% of what you know, and I'm just learning and loving it. And, you know, I'm just trying to allocate capital, blah, blah, blah. But here's my question. How many competitors that are niched out like you are, and maybe it's hundreds, maybe it's dozens. I have no idea. That's why I asked the question, A, and then the part B is, is it something, I guess, from a niche perspective that's becoming more common for you know, companies to sell their real estate as as the asset appreciation has been so dramatic in the last five to 10 years. And so is it becoming more of a thing, if you will? Yeah, those, those are great questions. Um, I really, I mean, in this space, and I've, you know, been in this space, I guess, you know, coming up on seven years now, I really, maybe two or three other operators I know who, you know, kind of have a similar model at most. Um, so really not a lot of people doing it. You know, what I've found is, you know, the sale leaseback world and and there's different levels, right? You have you have kind of what I call microcredit tenants, you know, really mom and pop, single location. You know, they might have a long tenure, but they just aren't doing a huge amount of revenue. Though those are easier to do sale leaseback, but they're typically more reluctant to sign really long term leases. They're gonna be shorter, you know, five, maybe seven years, um, you know, in exchange for you know, effectively cashing out the the assets tied up in the real estate. So, I mean, what I, I think we're one of, I mean, maybe only one or two that are effectively, you know, kind of boutique investment groups that are buying more institutional grade real estate. So, you know, our, our average deal size is probably right around 20 million these days. You know, quarter million square feet is, is not uncommon. And, you know, we're coming in, we're signing institutional grade you know, 20 year net leases um, with these tenants and the tenants have the credit really to to back up that investment and to back up that that gamble that you're making to say, hey, I'm willing to pay, you know, a premium on this real estate in exchange for, you know, long term fixed income through a triple net lease securitized by the credit. And this tenant has the tenure, you know, usually 40, 50 years. In existence, they have the, the historical revenues, the EBITDA, the margins, uh, you know, a minimal amount of debt that makes us feel comfortable that, hey, for the amount of time we expect to hold this real estate, they'll continue, A, remaining financially viable, and B, being able to pay the rent. Have you had any situations where a tenant, for some reason or another, wasn't able to um, basically, you know, pay the rent? We've been very fortunate. Uh, I mean, Going into COVID was the last, you know, I would say high stress event for commercial real estate as a whole. You know, as, as most people know, you know, certain asset classes got hit harder than others, hospitality, retail, even multifamily with the eviction moratoriums. I mean, those got hit really hard. Uh, even if the deals didn't fully go under, you know, cash flow for most of those projects just dried up. You know, operators were preserving cash flow as much as they could just because there's so many unknowns out there. But you know, on our portfolio, we, we had about 23 projects, uh, I believe 22 of them. Literally, everyone paid rent on time. We paid distributions on time. It was, I mean, as if nothing even happened, which was fantastic. And really went to show, you know, kind of the 
strength and maturity of these tenant companies, you know, they keep cash reserves. They're they're able to you know kind of ebb and flow with natural hiccups in whether they be recessions or black swan events like COVID here. Uh, and then the only one we had issues with was a, a single tenant health club. And this this health club, uh, it was it was actually called Genesis Health Clubs out in the Midwest. And they were uh, it's founded by two very talented guys, Rodney or the Stevens brothers, excuse me. And they they own I think about fifty locations now, um, but we had two two of their locations. They were proactive. They came to us and said, "Look, you know, we're forced closed. Uh, can we work out you know work out something?" And we were able to effectively negotiate uh, a pause, a, a forbearance on three months worth of rent. And we did a, a similar negotiation with our lender, and, and it worked out just swimmingly. I mean, we were able to. Effectively, everyone put a hold on on cash flow, both coming in and out. Um, you know, after a month and a half, they were able to reopen both locations, able to you know go back to historic revenues almost immediately, and we were able to amortize those missed rent payments into the future term of the lease. And we did the same with our lender. So, uh, really, I mean, that's that's the only hiccup that we've ever had from a you know honoring the lease and paying rent on time across our whole portfolio. Phenomenal. In their situation, just out of curiosity, why did they sell? Why did they do a uh, sale lease back? They uh, there's two projects. The first one we bought outright, and what happened for them? They were on heavy acquisition mode, so they they bought this um, bought this health club. I mean, really for pennies on the dollar, right? And they realized, hey, uh, we're buying this at effectively the price of the real estate. So they they did a sale lease back sold us the, the real estate and effectively bought this competing gym for free. Um, so it was, it was a, just a, a, a very savvy business move um, from their side. And from our side, we were still able to buy this real estate uh, at a, a discount to market. The security was great. We had both a, a guarantee from, from the company and personal guarantees from the two owners. And they, they have a very high net worth. And, you know, it was, it made sense from our side, definitely made sense from their side. Uh, and then the other one was interesting, similar deal, but they were like, Hey, we want to own the real estate long-term. So they had negotiated a, uh, a buyback option three years in. So we, we honestly were almost crossing our fingers, hoping they wouldn't execute because we owned great real estate, but they did. And, you know, as a pre pre-negotiated, um, buyback, all our investors hit target yield and, uh, you know, everyone, it was a win-win on both sides. What market uh, was was the health club in? What, one was in Iowa, uh, Des Moines, and one was in Lincoln, Nebraska. So that that is their bread and butter, kind of that Midwest section where they have over fifty locations now. And, you know, and judging by the average weight of people in those markets, I would say there's a big need for health clubs. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. <laughs> you know, I say that. I don't even know if that's true. I mean, I, I know that people are fat in Mississippi. And I, I, don't even, I just said that. I didn't even know if that's even true. That's but, funny. Um, and so, the food's good, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Or not. And then... Just a, a detail thing about the company. How many people are at the company full time from a, whether it be partner or employees? What what does that look like? Yeah, Dan Mag, we've got a dozen people full time and then you know, some some close contractual partners that we use for our due diligence, our inspections and um, you know, some to, to augment some of the credit work that we do. And um yeah, it's it's nice being, you know, kind of a lean team where, you know, we're able to move quickly. There's no 
you know, deal committee that, you know, decisions have to go through. Really, our, our team is hunting deals, negotiating, finding them, finding them all, all under one roof and able to move quick. And we found we're, we're actually been able to outmaneuver some larger REITs in that fashion just because of that, you know, really nimbility that comes with a small team that has a, a very minimal bureaucratic layer of decision making. It's funny you say that. I talked to another guy, actually a friend of mine who's worth God only knows, um, probably north of a hundred mil. And he he uh they're they're out buying industrial warehouses like is as large as a million square feet in places like Tennessee, et cetera, et cetera. And he says he he prevails against REITs for the identical reason. He says it's he and yeah. his partner. They're based here in Emeryville. You know, even sometimes if they have a lower price, the sellers mm-hmm. just, you know what, I know these guys will perform. We won't have to screw around. Yeah. You know, do you guys have a corporate office in the city where you go to or even even pre pandemic? Are you guys all virtual? We're largely remote. We've been, you know, largely remote pre-COVID. So, you know, the whole pandemic hitting didn't even, you know, move the needle in terms of our, our workflow um, from that, that side of things. But it's been nice. You know, we have we have a, a team presence in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, about three or four guys in the Bay Area, some SoCal, and a little bit on the East Coast up in the New York area. On a typical deal, so like in the multifamily world, which has gotten just ridiculously overheated, I mean, you know, any given deal, depending, like you said, in like Dallas, for example, you know, if a 300 unit complex or 400 unit complex comes on the market, there could be 30 offers for that, right? I mean, there could be Mm -hmm. 40 offers and they're not all, you know, people that could perform, but you get the the gist. So in these kind of deals, how many, how many offers do you think are uh, being submitted? You know, a lot of it depends. If it's if it's heavily marketed, you know, they can still get maybe two dozen legit offers. And these are, you know, fifteen, twenty million dollar properties. So I mean that's still quite a bit for an asset of that size. You know, conversely, you know, a lot of really a lot of our opportunity comes from timing constraints. And just to add some clarity to that statement, a lot of the reason why these companies are wanting to sale lease back the property is it's concurrent with an acquisition either uh, from a PE group of the tenants or even a, a larger competitor. And a lot of these people will come in and they're looking to effectively deleverage or reduce the acquisition cost of this company by selling off the real estate uh, and basically trimming down their acquisition to just focus on the operating company of that tenant. Um, and so that, that, Outside acquisition will often have some pre-baked in timing constraints and they'll come to us and go, hey, can you effectively, you know, sale lease back the real estate concurrent with our acquisition of this tenant company? You know, and sometimes it might only be, you know, a 40-day window. Say, all right, <laughs> better get to work. Whereas, you know, a larger firm might take 90 or 120 days, you know, for a similar operation. So, so what percentage of these deals are acquisitions from other companies? Whether it's simultaneous or a recent acquisition, I'd say, I mean, easily over half. So, you know, these, it's just a, a strong reason, especially when you have a, a PE backer, right? These private equity groups, they are laser focused at growing and advancing and, you know, investing in the operating companies of the companies they buy. And they really, they just don't have a big interest in being real estate owners. Um, you know, it, it's not their core competency. And frankly, they, they believe they can get a better internal ROI 
focusing, you know, pulling the assets out of that real estate and reinvesting that into the operating company they just bought. The niche just sounds like so incredibly airtight, the the way you're kind of presenting. It just seems like it just makes just incredible sense. And it it doesn't, inevitably, there's daily challenges and headaches like there is to every kind of business. But it just seems like, I don't know, it just just seems like it's something where, you know, again, compared to like multifamily, it it just seems like everybody on earth is doing it. And it just doesn't seem to be a hand in a glove doing a poor job explaining what I'm trying to con- con- <laughs> convey here, but maybe it means something to somebody. It conjures an expression I heard recently and it's uh, niche is rich, right? And, you know, there's a lot of people doing, you know, multifamily, like you said, and I, I think being able to find something, it can even be just an angle or a certain market that you're doing. But it, for us, it's more of the structure that we're using for this, that, you know, we, we play in a space that, there's really, there's, there's not that many players and, you know, we feel like we have the, you know, the, again, to use the nimbility word, uh, but, you know, we're able to outperform in a, in a lot of different areas because we're so tightly focused on, on such a narrow kind of acquisition and structural type of investment. So I, I interviewed a guy about a month ago. It was, it was just wonderful, super nice guy and um, cool guy to boot. He's older than well, he's not much older than me, but older than you, which, so he's been around a long time and, and, and he's based in Palo Alto. They're developers of 100,000 square foot neighborhood shopping centers with a grocery store, a drug store, and then, you know, and then it in line, whatever. And what he said is, which I just loved, and, and it's what I was able to do in my own marketing business is that he goes, having a, a niche within a niche is just so in other words not only is he shopping centers but he's you know he is he is just it, it's like mcdonald's it's like this is what we do and, and what he said is what made me think of it to your point is he said a niche within a niche you're so incredibly proficient that you're able to compete against national players and that's kind yeah. of what you're describing too yeah no, absolutely right. But now the the paradox comes, how deep do you go? What if you could do a niche within a niche within a niche? All the better. <laughs> this is like inception in, in the niche form here. Uh, you know, the, the t- you know is, as long as it's large enough, obviously, <laughs> right? Um, but it's, yeah, I, I mean, um, and there's really something for, you know, they talk about the 10,000 hours concept, like the Mad, mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I, I, I think it's 20,000, 30,000 hours, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so what percent, I guess, Neil, of the deals you do are like, let's, instead of saying industrial, let's use the term manufacturing, although you can answer the question however you want is opposed to like, for example, clearly a health club's not that. So what, you know, what's the kind of the model? I'm sorry, can you rephrase the question there? I'm sorry. So, you know, what percent of the properties you're buying are like manufacturers? Oh, got it. So really our our core model is around single tenant net leased sale lease back. Industrial has happened to be our asset of, of choice over the last few years. Just we really felt like it was undervalued when we started getting into it around 2015. And, you know, a lot of that hypothesis proved to be correct just because that whole asset class is, is taken off in a nice way. We feel like it still has some some legs on it. But, 
you know, I would say right now about 80, maybe no, closer to 90% is industrial, you know, industrial manufacturing. And then we, we do take on the occasional, you know, kind of hybrid model or, you know, for example, we, we bought a building, it was a largely office. It was like 80 or 60% office, 40% manufacturing. That was tenanted by Scantron, who, who makes those bubble sheets out in Omaha. That was last year. So some, sometimes these are hybrid type buildings. Um, you know, most are about 80, 85% industrial, 15% office, but sometimes we'll go more to a 50-50 split or even, even office heavy uh, if the credit behind the tenant is right. So ultimately, it's a credit play first a real estate play second. Yeah. How many deals do you guys look at and how many do you do a, a year or a quarter or however you want to define it? Yeah. I mean, maybe <laughs> probably, we probably crunch credit, run financials, look at deals, maybe 15 to 20 deals for every one that actually goes through the door and, and we actually pull the trigger on. Um, so it's, it's a pretty uh, shallow funnel, I guess, or shallow wide funnel. That's the word. Um, I'm envisioning this funnel that <laughs> has a lot coming in and not a lot coming out. But, um, you know, and then uh, per year, usually about eight to roughly eight to 10 projects per year. And we've just been kind of growing the scope of that, you know, the scale of those investments, you know, just as we kind of grow as a firm. So, Neil, has there been, um, you know, cap rate compression in the last few years or what, what's it been like? Yeah, so we've certainly seen cap rate compression across the board in, I mean, really all commercial real estate. You know, money's, cost of capital's gotten cheaper. There's more money chasing deals. Everything, what, what you're seeing in multifamily is also being seen in, you know, frankly, industrial. Uh, the good news is we've seen it's been allocated disproportionately in a way that still provides opportunity. So from our experience, you know, major metros, your Dallas, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, those areas have really seen, I mean, sometimes two, 300 basis points of compression because a lot of institutional investment dollars by mandate are only going into those really, you know, grade A cities. Um, you know, we found by looking in secondary and even slightly tertiary markets, if it's connected with the right type of credit and the right quality of credit, we're still able to find opportunity with, I would say, minimal compression compared to a few years ago uh, in a way that, you know, ultimately allows our model to still work. Oh, my God. It's so fascinating. I mean, I feel like I've said that nine times during this interview, but it just is because it's just so different from conversations I've had in the last several months. And because most of what I do, you know, I've interviewed, you know, mobile home guys. I've, I've talked to ground up you know, self-storage guys. I've talked to um, mobile home park guys, but the bulk of what I do is multifamily in this podcast. Not That's just what most sponsors do, I guess. Sure. And so even in those categories, and I will say, if nothing more, multifamily for sure, even the secondary markets for sure, there's been pretty dramatic cap rate compression. And I would say to some degree, even tertiary markets, you know, uh, unless it's in the middle of, you know, Nebraska in, in a market you and I have never heard of, and unless it's that, even tertiary markets, there's been tremendous cap rate compression because of what you're describing. There's just so much money in these deals. And so, and so I guess where my mind goes, I wonder 
if the same thing is going to happen in this asset class. And I guess A, which could potentially make things more challenging to acquire these at you know, attractive cap rates and returns for your investors, and or maybe it it drives the value up for the existing properties that you have or the ones that you're going to acquire in the near term through the roof is it just the thing keeps going. And all of a sudden people start figuring out, well, the cap rates are a seven in these other markets. Uh, we'll do those and all. I, I wonder I wonder how long of a of a secret, for lack of a better term, what you're doing will be. Yes, it's a great question. I mean, people you know, it's a balance of chasing yield while while managing risk, right? And, you know, I think we're, we're able to take on what I would call creative credit sometimes. Uh, and I, maybe that has, has the wrong ring to it. But, you know, ultimately credit that has a story to it. Uh, you know, we, we typically lose out to deals that, you know, if a company's massively profitable for the last 20 years and, you know, they do a, a half billion in revenues a year, I mean, that deal is going to trade at a five or six cap, no matter where it's located, right? And you know, some people will chase that and be fine with the yield from you know that that type of cap rate. We're we're buying more in the you know roughly seven seven to eight cap range. So you know, typically we we you know we'll find deals that we find are opportunity, or there's been you know maybe restructures a few years back, you know, or maybe they had a a rough year with a story attached to it, right? Just to use an example. We, we bought a uh, real estate tenant by a frozen pie manufacturer, and they had uh, they had suffered some losses two years prior because uh, the the operator was at the time heavily dependent on a contract with Walmart, right? And the Walmart the the buyer in his category had actually uh, went on sabbatical, and nobody picked up the slack, and so he lost the Walmart contract for like six months. And it, it crushed him because he was, I mean, that was like his 80% customer base. Um, but he turned it around. He got the Walmart thing back on track, uh, increased his revenues with Walmart. He, uh, the guy ended up, um, uh, what else? Oh, and he, he massively diversified. So now Walmart's only about 30% of his total revenue instead of 80. Uh, and we're like, hey, this is a story we can get behind. Yes, you lost money two years ago, but you know, we feel this is a, a turnaround story that we understand. And, you know, we were able to get, you know, frankly, uh, a good yield on it. And so I think that was, that was a, you know, type of creative credit story that, that we like to pursue for our investment portfolio. So when you say creative credit, for me being kind of a, a novice, explain to me what that means. I understand everything you just said about the business, sure. but what it, tell me what creative credit means. Yeah. So, I mean, a creative credit story, right? So, you know, the credit of the business you know, we we are evaluated, and when I say credit, I mean how how likely is this company to to stay afloat, right? And typically, you know, you might look in the in the recent past, and some some buyers would be turned off to say, "Hey, this this company lost money two years ago; they're too risky for me." But you know, in this case, we went in, we looked under the hood, and said, "Yes, they lost money two years ago, but we feel that the credit today." is positioned in a way that they're strong, they're more diversified. And, you know, we feel we feel good about, frankly, these people being able to pay their rent obligations over the four or five years we plan to hold the real estate. My last question is, so so you met the guys from, do you, do you call them MAG Capital? 
A mag, yeah. Okay, so mag capital. Uh, you met these guys through your previous position with uh, Tom, Tom Wilson. You know, you guys were just aligned in your view of the world. You just hit it off with those guys. How did they identify this niche? Uh, great question. Yeah, Dax Mitchell founded the company. And he really, I mean, he comes from a developer family. Uh, his his father is has been a really a developer, real estate fixture in Fort Worth and Weatherford, Texas, um, where they're from. I mean, really since before Dax was even born. So he grew up in that family. Uh, he became a commercial real estate broker, really helping buyers and sellers buy and sell, you know, both commercial assets and, you know, being involved in, in some development from a brokerage piece. And then after after the crash, you know, in 2009, he started seeing some investment opportunities, started investing on his own, eventually, you know, bringing some some key players together for projects as they got bigger in size and eventually formally turned it into, you know, kind of the investment company, Mag Capital Partners that we have today around 2015. Got it. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. If one were to be uh, inclined to get a hold of you and want to learn more, Neil, how, how can they do that? Yeah, um, just drop me a line. Uh, either my, my email is neil, N-E-I-L, at magcp for magcapitalpartners.com uh, or you can call text 925-487-3978. Love to hear your thoughts on the show, any comments, follow on questions, or if you're interested in joining our investment group, happy to walk through the process there as well. Sounds fantastic. Neil Walgren, uh, continued great uh, success, and uh, I've enjoyed every second of our conversation. Likewise, Roger. Thanks so much for having me on. You got it. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye.